Welcome to membership class. Today what we're going to do is talk about the article, Is Church Membership Really Right for Me? And uh, really spend a lot of time focused on church membership today. And then um, we're going to talk through our membership covenant. So what, is, what, what do we have as far as a affirmation of commitment at Newcastle for our members? And then we're going to pick up the mess that Brandon makes. No, we're just kidding. So let's pray that God will give us a sweet time together. Uh, before we pray, um, next Sunday, this class will still meet. But for the next three Sundays, uh, Scott and Teresa Cruzy, uh, come on in, are going to be teaching the class on our SHAPE class. So they're going to be actually... Uh, taking us through how to connect our gifts and our abilities with the ministries of this church. So that'll be for the next three weeks um, right here in this class time. Scott and Teresa Cruzy will be teaching. Scott's one of our elders. Fantastic. And then um, I think we'll have one last class left after they're done. And I will come back and do that class. And that will be, I think, middle of November um, as we transition into some, some other things for the church for the 9.30 hour until the end of the year. So our next 9.30 elective cycle doesn't start until January. So we're going to have a few gap weeks in there, and I think we're thinking about doing something church-wide with all the church together for like three or four weeks in the family center during the 9.30 hour just to kind of fill in the gap through the holidays and things until we get to January when the new elective will start. So... But today, we're focused on, is church membership really right for me? So let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, please help us as we think about what it means to be committed to your local church. Help us, Father, to love you. Help us to love one another with the same spirit that you intend. I pray, Father, that you'd bless my friends and my loved ones in this class here, that I could love them well with your word. And I pray that your spirit would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, Gaetano. Good to see you today. And Kathy, so good. Um, so is church membership really right for me? Does anybody need another packet for the articles to kind of reference? So um, one of the things that I want to do is uh, we're going to just skim through this article very, very quickly. And then I'm basically going to just teach through one verse. Okay, so let's, let's skim through this article. Um, the definition and quality, well, let me read the Grace Distinctives paragraph uh, right above the definition and qualifications of church membership. It says, in a day when commitment is a rare commodity, and isn't that true? Um, marriages, our commitment to marriages is as weak as it's ever been. Our commitment to our employers is as weak as it's ever been. Our commitment to our employees is as weak as it's ever been. Our commitment to churches this is a rare commodity. It should come as no surprise then that the church membership is such a low priority for so many people. Sadly, it's not uncommon for Christians to move from church to church, never actually submitting themselves to the care of their elders and never committing themselves to a group of fellow believers. So you know what happens, right? We kind of, we treat the church, the local church, as if it's kind of a buffet. I say, well, 
this is the kind of music I like, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go to the churches that have this kind of music. And this is the kind of preaching I like, so this is, I'm going to go to the churches that have this kind of preaching. This is the kind of kids' ministry that I like, so I'm going to go to the churches that have this kind of kids' ministry. And this is the kind of life groups or fellowship. And so we kind of create the church of our own liking. And we're there as long as it scratches our itch, but as soon as it doesn't, isn't quite what's the best option for me on the buffet... And see, that's, just, that's not a commitment-minded approach to church membership. That's a consumer-minded approach to church participation. So, so many people are just thinking about churches as what's in it for me. And that's actually radically different than what God's plan is for us. So, definition and qualification of church membership. When an individual is saved, he becomes a member of the body of Christ. Um, one of the things I talk about in today's message, although I don't have the time to give it full um, significance, so you get the overflow here. Uh, verse 25 says, we are members one of another. In Ephesians 4.25, it's in the message today. Ephesians 4.25 says, speak the truth, therefore lay aside falsehood and speak the truth to one another, for you are members one of another. It doesn't say you are members of the body of Christ. That's what you would expect it to say. It actually says Kevin is a member of Bev and Bev is a member of Kevin. That we are actually, when we become saved, Christ supernaturally, organically, makes us one with other believers. That, that flies in the face of consumerism. Like we are actually one, positionally, organically, united. One spirit baptizes us into one body. So, uh, so that should tell us a couple of things. One is when we're talking about church membership, uh, we're only talking about those who are united with Christ. So remember, we've got this universal church, right, which is everybody who's in Christ. So all those who are truly united with Christ, those who are truly saved. But then the universal church is invisible. From the time of Pentecost to the time of the rapture is the universal church. But we have these local churches, right? So we have these local churches like Newcastle Bible Church or Grace Church in Morton, which is our church we pray for today, or all these different local churches. And the local churches are actually made up of members but the reality spiritually is that not all those who are members in the local church are actually truly saved. See, these, these members over here, they're, they're not actually saved. In other words, you have pretenders. Now, as elders in a local church, we have the responsibility to try to make sure that we're not encouraging pretenders. And if we find pretenders, that we, that we call them into the body of Christ or we put them out of the church, right? But the reality is the local church always has a mixture of those who are truly saved and those who are just pretenders and those who are just doing the religious cultural thing. So there's no such thing as a perfect local church because the local church is actually, um, it's always trying to represent the universal reality in its local expression, but it won't be perfect until until heaven. So church membership is the way in which 
we are seeking to say, how do we identify who's in, who's in and who's out? And how do we um, commit ourselves to one another and to Christ? How do um, the elders and pastors here view the passages about the wheat and the tares and be careful what you try to pull out? Yeah. How do you view that in terms of that tension of who's part of that body and who isn't? And how do you handle that within the church? Yeah. Yeah, so are you all familiar with the scripture he's referring to about the, the tares and the wheat? And, and an enemy comes and to- sows um, pretenders in with the wheat field. It's called tares. And, and these are weeds, right? And so then the, the servants come to the farmer and say, well, should we go and rip up all the weeds so that you know, we can get rid of them? And the farmer says, no, because that will actually rip up the wheat with it. So let them both grow until the harvest, and then at the harvest, gather the tares and burn them, and the wheat will be gathered in the barn. So that's, that's the reference that you're referring to. So um, the reality is, is that, so how the elders seek to do that here is um, we seek to follow Christ's commands to be careful with both the front porch and the back door of the church. <laughs> you say, what does that mean? Well, when we're inviting people in, that's the front porch. When we're inviting people into the church, into church membership, the elders want to guard that entrance. Not anybody who wants to be a member at Newcastle Bible Church can be a member. It's the elders and the individual's mutual decision together of whether they're going to commit to membership and whether membership is right for them. So how do we guard the entrance? Well, we have a membership interview where we want the elders in plurality, there's usually two, will meet with you, or if your spouse or your family's with you, that's fine, you meet with you and your family. And they wanna hear, tell us about what God's done in your life. Tell us your testimony. Now this isn't intended to be intimidating or scrutinizing, oh, I might say the wrong word. No, this is brothers among brothers. This is, this is fellow Christians just saying, Tell me, what has God done in your life? I want to hear. And as you listen carefully to the testimony of God's grace and you say, where's the fruits of repentance? Like, how do we see that God is at work with them? This isn't just a religious agreement of a library of facts. This is a transformed life. This is somebody who's, who loves Jesus. This is somebody who's changing and growing. By the way, if you're truly saved, don't you want that? Don't you want others to be able to listen carefully to you, and be able to affirm with you that, sister, God's at work in your life. Brother, God, I can see God changing you and growing you. I want to encourage you. Yeah, none of us are perfect yet, right? None of us are perfect. The standard is not perfection. The standard is growth and progress. The standard is love. Do you love Jesus, and is Jesus loving you? So the first way that the elders care about this is we guard the entrance. We are careful about making sure only those who are entering the church and entering church membership to our best knowledge, and again, our knowledge isn't perfect, we're not God, we know that, but to the best that we can faithfully discern, we want to make sure that the members are in Christ, (laughs) that they're first united with Jesus before they ever want to be united with Jesus' church. By the way, that's why we require baptism, believer's baptism for all of our members, So before you can be publicly identified with the local church and church membership, we want you to be publicly identified with Jesus' death 
and resurrection, which is what baptism is all about. So just like Lila went through baptism, what was it, three or four weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, Lila got baptized. <laughs> we loved it. It was a wonderful celebration. She did a great job, and God was glorified. But that's because even though she's been part of this church family, not officially, but she's been attending here for years, we, she recognizes, oh, I need to be publicly identified with Jesus in believer's baptism before I'm publicly identified with one of his churches. So the first answer to your question is being very careful with the front porch, who we allow into membership, making sure, to our best of our knowledge, that we're only allowing those in who are truly saved. But we're not perfect, and people can pretend, and sometimes people are deceived. They don't even know that they're not saved, even though they think that they are. And so that gets shown then with, with fruits of repentance or lifestyles or actions and behaviors. And so uh, that's why uh, John the Baptist, he, he, he preached, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, right? Demonstrate the reality of God's grace in your life by how you live. Peter says in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, make every effort, make every effort to show, to make your election sure. Work out, in other words, this reality of God's sovereign grace in your life. Make every effort so that the people can see you changing and growing. And when that doesn't happen, last time we talked about, or maybe two times ago, we talked about uh, God's design for church discipline or spiritual restoration, so that a church family is committed to loving each other so much so that when you become a member, you're making a commitment that if you ever become aware of how I'm burrowing into sin and I'm burrowing into unrepentance, not that none of us are going to be perfect, so all of us are going to sin in different ways. But if we start to burrow into sin, we start to become deceived by sin, we start to embrace it and cherish sin, we're committed as members of one another to come to you and say, hey, Kevin, this doesn't seem good. This doesn't seem healthy. This doesn't seem right. How can I help you fight sin? How can I help you experience the grace of God so that you don't become deceived and embittered or fall into self-pity of sin? And so the church comes around each other, and this is what we call the back door, where we come around believers and call each other back to repentance and help each other not in a judgmental way, not in a critical way, but in a truly loving way to say, I love you too much to allow you to be deceived by sin and keep living this way that's going to harm you or harm others. I'm going to be willing to say the hard things. I'm going to be willing to say the uncomfortable things for the sake of your joy. And so when the believer repents, God, the body's purified, life goes on. But if over the course of time, the believer burrows into unrepentance, refuses to, to repent, starts to distance itself from the church and say, don't come after me, don't talk to me, I want to I do things my way. At some point then, Matthew 18 lays out the pattern where you go to them. If they repent, great, life is good. But if they don't repent, you bring a few more. You pray. If they don't repent, you tell it to the church. We do that here with letters to our membership. I talked last week about how there's, the church has got two letters in the last two months about two of our members that have been 
um, uh, deceived and unrepentant ongoing sin. We love them so much. We care for them so much. Our hearts are broken over what's happening. But probably in the next couple of weeks, we're going to go to the church family again on one of these uh, sisters of ours that we love very, very much and say, this sister has not responded yet to our knowledge in repentance to the prayers of the church, the pursuit of the church, the love of the church. And so this person who's currently a member in the local church, we are going to remove her membership and thereby exercise what, what Matthew calls the keys to the kingdom, in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, and exercise the keys and say, even though she claims to be a believer, she's living in a manner that is inconsistent with belief. She's burrowing into unrepentant sin, refusing to turn from it, and thereby showing that she's not, she's not saved. And so having discovered one of these members among us, we will remove her membership, thereby putting her outside of the local church and removing any assurance of her salvation. Not to judge her, not to punish her, but so that she might experience the community reality of her false profession and be brought to repentance and be saved, right? We want, we want, us, we want her to be saved. We love this dear sister, even though it's becoming clear she's really not a sister in Christ. So, I'm long answer, but it's an important answer for members to understand. Um, how we deal with this is we're careful who we allow into membership. Then once we are shepherding the flock, if we see somebody that has sin and they're, they're, they seem to be unaware or unable to turn from it on their own, we come and try to help. Help them turn from sin. Find freedom in Christ. If somebody shows through that pursuit of shepherding that they're actually not saved. But they say that they still are. Then the church has the responsibility to make visible what is the invisible reality of heaven. And the invisible reality, they're not saved. So the church has the responsibility to represent that invisible reality as best as we can in a visible form. And so we will remove somebody's membership and take away their assurance of salvation. You say, what in the world? Why does any person have the ability to tell somebody they're not saved? No, no one person has that authority. But God delegates his authority to a plurality of leaders that we call elders. The scripture calls them elders. And the elders as a governing body of the church have the delegated authority of Christ to bind and loose. It's called the keys to the kingdom. To say who's in and who's out of the church, of God's kingdom program. And the elders take that very, very seriously. That's a big responsibility. But as a plurality, there's a protection there. It's not just one person. It's not just Kevin saying, I don't like you, you're out. It's the elders as a group that are affirming or denying somebody's profession based on the character of their life and what we can observe. So what questions do you have about that? Because that's important. It's a great question. Does that answer your question? It does. So it's tender, careful, loving, but intentional. And it's helpful to hear because not every church is careful with that. Right. 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 We can cause harm and do damage to the body in right. an effort to try to keep it pure. Right. And so an understanding of how the church handles that is something. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's always a heartbreaking scenario. Um, and, you know, like I told the class last week, we, there's three of those scenarios going on right now in our church family. And so um, the elders have just been heartbroken. I mean, just there's, there's one elder meeting. Uh, it's been a couple months now, but I remember we were talking about this. We were praying about it. And one of the elders just said, this just makes me sick to my stomach. I mean, physically sick over the heartbreak of somebody that we love and we delight in their, their relationship. And, and you see the deception of sin and how it's just destroying their own life and their family's life, and yet they refuse to turn from it or acknowledge that. It's just heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking. I can see a question churning. <laughs> Going back to something you said just a little while ago, like, Maybe a stupid question, but no. You have you have the local church. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned something about the family and the difference between the family and the church or the local church. So I'm assuming um, that we're not locking the door to non-believers. Mm-hmm. Right. We're not doing that. Right, yeah. Anybody can come to church and worship Christ with us. When I say come to church, you know, we're really kind of saying come to a building or come to an event. The church is a people, not a building or an event. But, but, but anybody can worship Christ along with the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it talks about how we should worship so that when unbelievers come among us, they're in awe of God and say, oh, truly God is among them. So, so we welcome unbelievers. We welcome um, hypocrites and pretenders to come and worship Jesus with us. But the church has to be a defined entity of who's in and who's out. There has to be some way of knowing who's part of the church and who's not part of the church. In other words, the question is, and I'm going to get to your question in a minute, but the question is, um, is everybody part of a church who just attends? Or is, is there some kind of squatter's rights that after you attend for so long, then you actually are automatically in? And actually, the scriptures are very clear that there's a boundary, there's a defined in and out. And the elders of the church have the responsibility of knowing who's, who are they accountable for before God and who aren't they. I'm not accountable for every person who walks across this parking lot and sits. I'm not spiritually accountable for their soul. But as elders, together, we are spiritually accountable for every member of this church. Right now, there's 342 members in this church. And those 342 members, we will give an account spiritually before God on Judgment Day as the elders here for how we shepherded those 342 souls, how we cared for them and how we, how we spiritually encouraged them. So to clarify something for me, so the three situations you have when you deal with it, mm-hmm. <clears throat> is the the church is not involved in your decision and stuff. It doesn't go before the church, does it? So, good question. So, uh, Matthew um, 18, verses 15 to 17, actually uh, kind of gives us a pattern for... Four steps of spiritual restoration. 
uh, you know, how do you restore somebody? In other words, like Galatians 6 uh, says, if any of you see someone who's caught in sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of humility, in the spirit of gentleness, right? So there's, there's four steps that Matthew 18 lies out. So first, it's just, if you see somebody um, that's uh, sinning, uh, go to that person one-on-one privately. Don't talk to other people about it. Don't gossip. Don't slander. Just go privately one-on-one and say, hey, did I see this right? You know, am I understanding? How can I help you? And if he repents, you've won your brother. Life goes on. Restoration happened. That's great. <laughs> that happens all the time here at Newcastle, by the way. We're practicing spiritual restoration among the body all the time because that's what committed love looks like. Frankly, you do that with your spouse, don't you? You're like, hey, the way you talked in that conversation kind of came off a little proud. Oh, I'm so sorry. Thanks for telling me. I didn't didn't mean that. I need to be more careful about that. That's Matthew 18, 15 happening in just life on life conversation. That's good. That's healthy. It's not judgmental. It shouldn't be. It could be. It could be abused. All this can be abused. But the possible perversion of a doctrine doesn't negate the truthful reality of it, right? So God's design for this is that one-on-one. But let's say you go one-on-one and the person kind of spites you. No, I I wasn't proud in that conversation. I'm not proud. I'm not angry. (laughs) And they yell at you and say they're not angry, right? And so you say, well, you pray, you pray. And the scripture says, well, then take somebody else with you. And so that what you can... What you say and their sin can be established in the multitude of witnesses. In other words, it's not just a misunderstanding. It's not just something that you have a beef about this person, but this is something that one or two or three maybe of you go together and you say, hey, this is a pattern. This isn't a one-time thing, and this seems like this could be really destructive to your soul. And you go, you ask, offer help. And again, if they repent, then you've won your brother or sister. Life goes on. Nobody knows about it, right? You've restoration happened. But if they don't repent, then verse 17 says, tell it to the church. So this is where the church gets involved, where you actually, um, in us, you say, well, how do you define the church? Is the church everybody that shows up on a Sunday morning? And we just say, okay, we have an announcement today. I need to tell you about Kevin Souter. Kevin Souter's living in sin, and we need to pray for him. Some churches do that. We don't do it that way here. Because we don't think the church is defined by those who attend. We think the church is defined by the membership. Those who have raised their hands and said, I'm committed. I'm in. And those whom the elders have agreed and said, you're right, you're in. And so that's the church. So the way we do that is not, one, not in our public gatherings, but we send a letter to all of our members and... Um, and we, you know, the letters, we try to be very gracious. Uh, we try to not gossip, slander. So we say, uh, you know, we're writing to ask for prayers and love for our brother, Kevin Souter. And uh, several months ago, several people started to confront brother Kevin with some of the concerns about his failure to pursue faithfulness in his marriage. So we'll, we'll say the sin, but we'll do it in kind of that kind of a way that's high level, it's honest, it's true, but it's not nitty-gritty details. We'll say, it's not gossip. We'll just say, say the truth. Like a couple, several people have been pursuing Kevin for the last several months over his, and then we'll name the sin, whatever it is. Like 
the one that was recently, just a few weeks ago, was um, uh, her um, idolatrous desire for uh, romance that has led her to sexual relationships. Something like that. I think maybe we said fornicate. I forget how we worded it. But it's something just high level, but it's true. We're not trying to cover the truth. We're not trying to hide it. We're not going to not going to um, gossip. And then, then the letter goes on and says, so those of you who have a personal relationship with this person, please pursue them with love. Being careful to examine your own heart, not judge, not condemn, but offer God's grace. If you don't know this person personally, please pray for them. God uses this as the defibrillator, right? To come and say, all clear, to restore life. This is restoration. This isn't punishment. This is to bring back life to somebody who's dying on the table. They're so deceived by sin, they're pursuing it headlong. This is the rescue mission of God, his church. But then it goes on, it says, and if he doesn't listen to the church, which is now where this sister's at, and probably we're going to send us the fourth letter to the membership, uh, let them be to you like a tax collector and a publican. In other words, let them be recognized as an unbeliever. So in other words, at that point, you remove their membership. Some people call this excommunication, all right? But basically what you're doing is you're just, you're just saying we have to recognize the invisible reality that your actions have made evident. 1 John 3, 9 is so clear. Anyone who continues in the habitual practice of sin is not born of God. We all sin. None of us are sinless. I know. I'm not sinless. But to burrow in and say, I'm going to continue to do something that I know is sin, and I don't want help changing this because this is what I want, and this is what's going to make me happy, and I'm going to do this no matter who comes after me. That is evidence that you are not born of God. 1 John 3, 9. And so in that case, we remove it. Does that, does that answer your question? can get a hold of you and sin is sin is is horrible Mm -hmm. yeah and i think sometimes you know it takes a lot of believers to come alongside of you to show you that you're in sin and yeah and to to get out of it Mm -hmm. and you need the holy spirit to get out of sin but i mean i maybe it's because i'm very uneducated theology wise to say that you're you're not saved if you right. it's evidence that you're not saved if you sin yeah and you're asking a great question Kathy I, I really want to encourage you to keep asking that question um, and if I can't help you I have other people help you with it because 
we're not saying, I want to be careful what I'm saying and what I'm not saying, what I, the scripture I, I says. I know what you're saying for the church. The church has to take a stand. And, yeah. And you have to take a stand with the membership. And I totally agree with it. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I don't agree with it. I agree with the whole process. Yeah. Biblically correct. Right. Yeah, I mean, the scripture just lays that out. Scripturally, it's correct, and I agree with the whole process. Yeah. And, and if somebody doesn't come through the process correctly, they, they are totally there's evil there. There's just evil got a hold of Well, and Scripture's very clear, 1 John 2.19, those who went out from you, uh, they went out from you because they were never of you. In other words, um, there is a reality of those who are among us that were not of us. You know, they were were in the church visibly, but they weren't in the church spiritually. (laughs) And so over time... Is that that always... I think it's always the case in a fallen world that, that there's no such thing as a perfect church. Now, I'm sure there, you, know, you could get a group of five people that <laughs> meet somewhere, and they're all truly born again. You know, I'm not saying there's no church that, has, that doesn't have a pretender in it. I'm just saying the expectation or the biblical reality or assumption is that there is such thing as false believers. I mean, we see that yeah. all over the scripture and, and those, not and all who profess. Yeah, and, and that's, that's the whole point. So, so again, the scripture's clear. Believers have sin. We, we, we are not sinless. I don't want to create that expectation like, well, if I'm, not, if I'm still fighting sin, then I can't be saved. No, 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 no. The very fact that you're fighting against sin is proof that you are saved. So that's actually one of the evidences of our salvation is that we hate our sin and we want to fight against it. Not that we're perfect, but that we're fighting it. But this is something very different. Listen again just to 1 John so that you don't have to hear me quote it. 1 John says this, starting in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now you know that Jesus appeared to take away sin, and in Jesus there is no sin. But no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning. So notice he's not saying no one who sins, which by the way is what the King James says. So the King James mistranslated the verb tense and created a doctrine of perfectionism. One of the biggest reasons I'm against the King James is because 1 John 3, King James teaches a heresy. So the verb tense here is continual practice. So that's why the ESV and other good translations say, uh, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Jesus or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices or keeps on doing righteousness is righteous, as Jesus is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of of the devil. Whoever does not 
continue in the practice of righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's very, very clear. Strong words. But those words combine with Matthew chapter 7, very strong words there as well, where Jesus says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to be in the kingdom. Right? And they say, well, but, 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 but we did all this ministry for you, and we, we, we cast out demons in your name, and, and we preach the gospel in your name. And he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. So the, the, the reality that we have to come to grips with is to be a Christian is a supernatural miracle. It's not a decision that you make. It's not some church that you go to. Well, I'm a Christian if I go to this church, but I'm not a Christian if I go to this church. No, no, no. To be a Christian is not cultural. It's not decisional. It's supernatural. It's the work of God. This is amazing. That God takes a sinner who's opposed to him and radically transforms his heart from the inside out. So now this sinner's heart beats for Jesus. And he loves God. Not that he's perfect, but for the first time in his life, he now loves God. And he desires righteousness. And now that's where the fight against sin begins. And this person who's born of God, who has God's spirit or God's seed abiding in him, is the one who actually uh, will grow and change and become more like Jesus over time. So these are hard truths. And again, no individual has the right to look another individual in the eye and say, I know you're not saved. Because we're not God. God knows. But God delegates that authority to the plurality of elders to know who's in and who's out. We call it exercising the keys of the kingdom based on Matthew 16, Matthew 18. And then keep this in mind too. Even when we go to, because the two situations that we're currently dealing with here in our church family, without getting too personal, um, both of these people are trying to convince us that they're saved. And we're saying, based on how you're living, that's not true. We want you to be saved. So, so notice, these are hard situations. You're putting somebody out of the church. You're saying, you are not saved. When they're trying to say, yes, I am. Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? And we're saying, your, your life doesn't bear the fruits of repentance. But why do we do that? To punish them? No. Go to 2 Corinthians. I want to show you this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I love it, but it's hard. It's very hard, but this, this is so important for membership. So this is not a distraction. This is, I want to, I want to itch the scratches, scratch the itches that you're itching. I want to answer the questions you have. And if you want more on this, come to uh, Souter's lunch at our house at 1230. <laughs> Go to second, uh, first Corinthians, excuse me, first Corinthians chapter five. This, this, will rock, this will rock your world a little bit because this is a stern, stern text. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The context here is Paul's, remember, Paul's writing to Corinth. He's not there. The church in Corinth is very immature. They've got a situation where one of the members in the Corinthian church is living in an incestuous relationship with his stepmom. Okay? So this is evil. It's wicked. It's wrong. And Paul's not there, and he knows, he hears about this. And the church in Corinth is saying, we're the progressive church. Look at us. This person fits here. Like, we're progressive. 
we're actually for this. This is okay. We're not going to make a big deal about this. Other churches across town, they would have judged this guy. We're not going to be that church. Like, and they're playing that game. And this is Paul's response to that. Uh, and notice what he says um, in verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. There's are strong language. That's strong. Up in verse 2, he says, Let him who has done this be removed from you. Put him out. Deliver his soul to Satan. What? Why? So that, end of verse 5, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, it's still about restoration. It's not about punishment. It's still so that his spirit may be, even when we get to this place, like we have here recently with two of our loved ones, the goal isn't so that, I mean, we actually, in the one case, because of the nature of the sin and the public uh, nature of it in the courts and in the newspapers and those type of things, we actually immediately declared excommunicated. Um, and the reason we did that is because we had to make a statement as a church family for the sake of the watching world because his sin was now public in the watching world in the business community. So we had to make a statement that this, this kind of, uh, in, in, in his case, the, the sin was stealing and lying. So this kind of sin is not tolerated in Christ's church. This kind of sin is not characteristic of believers. Long, habitual pattern of stealing and lying that had been confronted for a long time by multiple people, never repented of, just kept doing it, even while saying, I'm never going to do it again, then go out and do it again. This kind of sin is not characteristic of Christians. Immediately put out with the hope that his spirit might be saved. Um, a good combination of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 2 Corinthians 5. Yes, yes. Where Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation. Yes. And one of the things I um, was impressed to me in school and serving in church leadership in the past has been sometimes we think that the reconciliation we have with God is a personal thing between us and God. But mm -hmm. Paul makes clear in 2 Corinthians 5 that that ministry of reconciliation has been given to the church. Today. Yeah. That God has made the leaders in the church or who Paul is writing to. Paul says here that in 2 Corinthians 5.19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against mm -hmm. them. And he has committed the me message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. Mm -hmm. So it is the church, especially those leaders and pastors and elders, who are called to be the path, the ambassadors of reconciliation yeah. between the members of God. Tell it to, not the leaders, tell it to the church the body so every one of us so if you become a member here i hope you're understanding the seriousness and significance of this if you become a member at newcastle bible church you're saying um, i'm committed to loving people who are also members of this church the way that god has loved me 
which isn't based on convenience. It's not based on my consumer mentality. It's based on love and grace. Like I want to be, I want to love others like Christ has loved me. And I want you members to love me the same way. So it's a mutual commitment to each other. Uh, let me just do this. We're going to ignore that article. That article is there for your later pleasure. But just go to uh, Hebrews 13, 17. If I had to teach one scripture that I think argues for local church membership today, it's Hebrews 13, 17. So let me just remind you of, of this uh, passage. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, in the, in the context, leaders here are talking about church leaders because in verse 7 it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. So he's talking about shepherds. He's talking about pastors. He's talking about church elders here. He says, Obey your church elders, your leaders, and submit to them. Why? Well, by the way, what does hupotasso mean? What does submission mean? Submission is a bad word. A lot of people don't like submission because they think it's oppressive. Submission means lining up underneath my leaders so that my life helps make them successful to their authority. So in a marriage, wives submit to your husbands. Line up under your husband so that your life makes your husband more successful to his authority. Who's the husband's authority? Christ. So it says submission is not being a, 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 a floor mat. Submission is using all of your gifts, all of your skills, all of your energy, all of your power, all of your talents, and putting them to work to help make your head successful to his head. So in the church, members, submit yourself to the leaders. Use all of your energies, use all of your talents, use all of your skills, use all of your intellect to help make your elders pleasing to God. Same in the workplace, same in civil union, okay? So, uh, not civil union, civil uh, uh, government relationships. So he says, obey your leaders, hupotasso, line up underneath them for their eternal joy, in other words, submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your ministry. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. Hebrews 13, 17 says, these elders in plurality, plural, they're keeping watch over your soul. This is very anti-American. In America, we're individualistic. It's me and God. Not according to Hebrews 13, 17. Somebody besides you is keeping watch over your soul. God's designed it that way. Well, who's responsible to keep watch over your soul? Well, your spiritual leaders. Well, who are my spiritual leaders? I like listening to, to John Piper on the internet. Is he my spiritual leader? John Piper doesn't even know my name. Who's your spiritual leaders? Well, I like to go to this church on Wednesday nights and this church on Sunday nights and this church on Sunday morning. Who's your spiritual leaders? This is why you need church membership. In Acts, you see they were added to their number every day. There's an in and there's an out. There's a physical accounting. There's 342 members on our list today that the elders here pray for every single week. There's 600 people that 
regularly attend here. But there's 342 that we are accountable to God for their souls. You see? So church membership, without church membership, you don't have any way of raising your hand and saying, I'm in. This is just our cultural way of committing to so that the spiritual leaders know who they are accountable to God for. Why? Because they have to give an account. It says, as those who will give an account, they will give an account for their shepherding of your soul, not just their oversight of your ministry. And then he says, let them do this with joy. So he's talking to the members here. He says, live with your church leaders in such a way that you increase their joy. In other words, let them know that you're committed. Let them know you're on board. Let them know you're praying and encouraging and serving together. Don't, don't make your spiritual leaders groan. <laughs> let them not do it with groaning. Because when your spiritual leaders are like, oh, Kevin's calling again. Oh, I got another email from Kevin. Oh, I got to go and talk to Kevin again about how he needs to love his wife better and have the 40th conversation again. Like when your leaders are, are groaning in their shepherding of you, that's not good for your soul. That's not to your advantage. You know what's good for your advantage? Wow, I love talking to Todd. Every time I talk to Todd, I get a greater love for Jesus. I'm more excited about what God's Spirit's doing in Todd and Janice's life. This is amazing. Like, right? One of the greatest privileges of a local church is joyful spiritual shepherds. When the spiritual leaders are filled and controlled by joy, that is good for a church. It's God's design. Church membership is just a very practical tool that helps believers obey 1317. I do not believe it's possible to be a Christian in central Illinois in this year and obey Hebrews 13, 17 if you have a willful decision to reject church membership. I think you're in disobedience to this verse. I just believe that is how, in our culture, we obey Hebrews 13, 17. And so, to me, that is, that is the biggest biblical text, if I just had to go to one verse, that says every Christian should be publicly committed to a local church. Not for life because God might move you to a different local church at some point, right? And that's okay. But while you're in this local church, be committed to it. Be shepherded. God intends for you to be shepherded and cared for, your soul to be under the oversight of godly men together, uh, serving and working for your joy. I love this joy thing. The elders have been talking about this a lot recently with... um, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.24 uh, says, we are laborers together for your joy. We've been talking about that as elders, how our eldering shepherding is for the members' joy. Like we love seeing the members thrive and be filled with the joy of Christ. Like let the joy of Christ be your strength. Like we love working and laboring and making sacrifices for your joy. It's a good thing. But Hebrews 13, 17 turns that around and says the way you relate to your leaders actually increases their joy or has the potential to affect their joy as well. So that's my church membership talk in five minutes. It is. Yeah, it's, it'll be online. All of, this, all of these uh, are being uh, posted online. Usually about Tuesday they get put up on our website. 
So if you just go and search our resources for church membership class, you should find all of the different uh, recordings of the class um, before. So, so the uh, Matthew 18 should elicit a uh, significant amount of introspection for someone who has an inquisitive mind who, who asks themselves, well, how can I do this? Yeah. And, uh, and that's really the response that you want. Yeah. Yeah. What does it mean to deliver to Satan? So when our elders did this recently, uh, we talked about that very question, and we decided it meant that we are turning the person over to the physical consequences of their sin, and we're not going to hide or protect, or somehow put the church in between God's paddle and their rear end. But we are saying this sin has significant consequences that are going to, that are going to destroy your life. And it's going to be painful to watch. And we're going to cry as we watch it. But Satan is having a heyday with you, friend. Satan is having a heyday. And your only hope is the power of the gospel. And, and God, where sin is abounded, grace can even more abound. But you have to repent. You have to turn from your sin and forsake it and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So we, we, we believe it's still possible, even though we've excommunicated you, we believe it's still possible that your soul could be saved on the last day. In fact, this is why we've done this, is to give you a clear warning. And your life is going to be miserable right now because of the consequences of your persistent, unrepentant sin. But we're praying that that will be what God uses to break your pride and bring you to repentance unto life and your soul might be saved. Better to lose a life or a limb on this earth and have an eternity with Jesus forever. So, we didn't get to the covenant, but let me just introduce it very quickly in one minute and then uh, you'll be prepared for it. So um, you'll notice Newcastle Bible Church has never had a membership covenant before, okay? So this is brand new. In fact, this is a draft form. This is actually not the final draft. We've actually finalized it since it was put in your packet. And so the final version is just slightly different. In fact, we changed the name of it from covenant because covenant kind of communicates lifelong agreement. And we changed it from a, to a membership affirmation of commitment, all right? But, and we changed the, the, uh, the wording of all nine of these statements to be I will statements so that when we read it, when, you're, when, you, uh, when you sign it, you're signing I will instead of I think this says we or something like that. Yeah, so we ch- because it's, it's an individual commitment that each person is making to the body. And so we made it I will. But if you read through these nine commitments, All we're doing with this new document is we're defining or making articulate what has always been our expectation. So we haven't changed our expectation. 
We're just defining it and making it, putting it on paper so that now people say, and now what we're going to do, we're so excited about this as elders, because what we're going to do is every time we receive new members in front of the congregation, maybe you've seen that done here before, we're going to have the new members recite these I will statements. And at the end, you know, so, so the pastor or the elder will say, do you agree? What is the first one? Let me read it. And they, they will all say up front, we will, right? And the whole church will hear this. So it will create this recurring reminder of what our commitments are as members together, okay? So we're excited about kind of rolling this out. We're going to roll it out in January. We're going to preach through this covenant nine messages. So each of these different statements will have a sermon on each one. We have a nine-week series on church membership for Newcastle. And then... We're going to do something kind of bold. We're going to say, okay, now that we've talked about this for nine weeks and we all understand what church membership is and means, we're going to re-up everybody's membership. We're not going to grandfather anybody and say, we're going to ask everybody in this church who wants to be a member here. We've got people that have been active members here for 50 years, right? And say, okay, sign Make a commitment that you you agree with this and that you're in on this, and and then they'll they'll automatically you know be members once they commit, and then for new people that haven't been members yet, we'll still have that membership interview and those kinds of carefulness to to guard, but basically we're 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 saying we really want to make membership more meaningful. It's not just authorization to vote; it's a commitment to live like this in the body, for the glory of Christ. So that's all coming in January. So you got a nine-week membership class coming uh, once we get there. So thanks for your time. I know I went a little long today. I'm going to stop the recording. Uh, let's pray and uh, go out into our worship together. Father, thank you so much for this class and thank you, Father, for um, the amazing privilege of being part of your church. You you love your church. You died for your church. You your church is your preferred priority way of advancing your kingdom on the earth today by the power of your spirit. So, Father, please strengthen our love for your church. Help us to, to be committed to her and to be committed to one another for the sake of your glory, we ask. Amen.